Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Michael Lombardi. Michael, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for coming here. And, uh, you know, I have to mention that you spoke to my class and the class, uh, you know, the class writes reflections afterwards. And they were really glowing. I mean, they really learned a lot from you. So I appreciate your being there and coming in. That was a, a class uh, on sports leadership. So I want to read your bio for people who aren't familiar with you and haven't read your book. But I, my first contact with you was through reading your book. Uh, okay, so Michael Lombardi is a former general manager and three-time Super Bowl-winning NFL executive. After 30 years working for the New England Patriots, San Francisco 49ers, the Oakland Raiders, and the Cleveland Browns, he's a top 10 sports podcast, GM Street. Is that right? Is it still that? Shuffle now. It used to be Street, now it's Shuffle. Yes. Okay, Shuffle. Uh, some guy named Belichick once okay. said of Lombardi, Mike's one of the smartest people I know. He's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with and was a huge asset for me in the two years he was here. He studies football. He knows it very well. I would say probably all teams. I could go on, but that, I mean, you're, you've won a lot. You've played, you've, you've coached with, I mean, your book talks about your working with Bill Walsh, Al Davis, uh, Bill Belichick, uh, Tom Brady, and it's phenomenal. Uh, you're, and it also starts with you working your way up, being kind of a go, uh, like a gopher, uh, go for driving a Porsche, someone else's Porsche. Uh, I'd love to get a quick review of your, like, how did you reach those levels? And how, where did you begin, if you don't mind sharing? Well, you know, there's an old saying that says uh, the world gets out of the way for people that know where they want to go. And, uh, you know, I knew where I wanted to go since I was 12 years old. I, I mean, you know, I saw this guy on my TV set that looked like somebody who was in my family, uh, had the same last name as I did, was no relations to me, but... You know, it was like, wow, that's impressive. And he reached this high level in sports, and I love football. So I just, from the time I was 12, I played this game called Stratomatic Baseball, which was with my two friends when, when I was about 13 years old, 12 years old. Uh, it was It's a baseball. It's a dice game with baseball. And you pick players, and you build a team, and you do all that, or you manage a team. And I was just fell in love with the idea of building teams, managing teams, working in sports from playing that game. And so, you know, I just try to set a course to get me to that in that direction as best I could. So when I went to college, I played football at Hofstra, but my whole idea was to try to get a graduate assistant job at a, at a college so I could learn more about football. Now, there's so many different directions you could go in. I mean, even if you if you didn't, I mean, you played some. You could coach players, you could, I mean, but you went in the direction of management. And I feel like there's an interesting interplay of, and there's much more of a, it feels like to me, much more of a leadership role. And it's on the one hand, it could be one step away from the field, one step further than say, just direct coaching a player. But I don't, I mean, you're in football. I, I've never, and you're in football as deep as it gets. You're as competitive as anyone I feel. How did you work in this direction as opposed to, to say coaching players, or do you still get to coach players a fair amount? You know, when I got first, when I first got my first job at UNLV in 1981, I thought I wanted to be a coach. And then I realized I didn't, you know, I didn't want to work on such a micro level. I wanted to see the big picture. And so I started to get into the recruiting process and recruiting players and trying to find talent and build talent. We're all scouts in life. I mean, you know, everybody's a scout. You know, you walk down the street, you're scouting constantly observing and so, you know, and then when I got to San Francisco, I really became, it was to change my life because I got in a car with this great coach who thought differently, was completely divergent in thought. 
and demanded, uh, not suggested, demanded that if I wanted to go into scouting, that I had to be different than the, most of the scouts that he had come across in his career. And which meant go read this book by Tom Peters called In Search of Excellence and by Peters and Waterman. And I have it on my shelf over here, signed by Peters. It's one of my treasures in life uh, because that book changed, you know, my approach to what the job was. You know, it, it, you know, when you're growing up, it's your coach is a whistle and a, and a, and a clipboard. And, you know, and he tells you what to do and he screams and yells. And Walsh showed me that it was a leadership role. It was how to motivate how to drive people, how to think, how to be divergent in thought. So that changed everything for me. And so from that point forward, you know, he told me to learn the whole game, not just learn the scouting game. And that's what I tried to do. When you say that he demanded of you, I don't feel like he was exercising authority and for like he wasn't threatening you. No. How did the demand work? Because basically he said it, you know, he put it in a way where he knew he would whet my appetite. He, you know, one thing you know in life, when you see somebody who's ambitious, and certainly I was ambitious, I had that. I would have done anything. I mean, I'm picking up the man's dry cleaning. I'm cleaning his car. You know, whatever he told me, you got somebody doing that for you. You know, they're eager and they're ambitious. He just, he perfectly situated and said, look, if you want to go far in this profession, you have to be this. That's all he had to say. And it wasn't, and it was kind of him to do it because he was giving me advice, you know, and he was coaching me. I think we have a hard time in life is especially young people and certainly me at that age to understand what's coaching and what's criticism. When we take it as coaching, we embrace it. When we take it as criticism, we don't listen to it. And the great leaders are able to coach, not criticize. Now you presented as it was obvious. I mean, could anyone could see by what you were doing, your willingness and eagerness to do anything that you really wanted to do it. Did he also evoke from you what specifically would motivate you and to use those things or he, you know, I was motivated by praise. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to make him happy. And I wasn't motivated by money ever because if I was motivated by money, I wasn't making it. You know, I wanted, was motivated by a career. I knew that I needed to plant tree. I needed to plant a tree. I needed to spend five years learning my craft before I could actually be of value to somebody. And fortunately for me, I was he was willing to give me projects that help advance me. For example, I wrote about this in my new book. You know, he made me do a research project on three players in the 84 draft that was different than, than anything anybody had done. Like I, ha- I had to call Eddie Brown's high school coach. I had to call his teachers. I had to call a Jerry Rice's, uh, you know, school and, and, do, and then write a f- comprehensive report about the person, not the player. You know, that that was I felt like if I collected the right data, then he would make the right decision. Yeah, the, the intensity of it is really is to me intriguing and fascinating because I think people want to be impassioned people. And you could have been impassioned. And he could have been a, a poor leader and then you'd feel frustrated, probably. Or he could be a great leader. and You could be not impassioned and then he'd feel frustrated. This match, I guess there must have been a I would guess at the hiring process, he must have screened. Maybe it was just luck. He, didn't, he actually didn't really hire me. I kind of came on board that Tony Rosano, the director of college scouting, hired me. But I think what Walsh understood, what a lot of leaders don't, is giving information that you know to people who work for you is currency. That's a valuable form of currency. And in today, I wrote about this for the Daily Coach, in this inflationary world we live in today, leaders 
are going to listen to their, all their employees complain about they're not making enough money. Well, the only offset to that is you have to help them grow and develop. And through your knowledge, you gain, you give them currency. And that's what Walsh was giving me. He was giving me currency. And, and I was at least smart enough to take it. You know, I, I, I knew it was currency and I knew it was going to help me because I'm 62 years old, soon to be 63. And I think of Walsh every day. And there's something that he told me in that car that comes to my mind every day. It was currency that I could never pay. I mean, I paid whatever I paid to go to college, you know, with, between loans and scholarships and all that. I mean, that, that car ride was, was worth harder. Now to say something more to the listeners now for a second is one of the reasons I bring leaders from lots of different areas to a podcast on sustainability and not necessarily people who work on sustainability or scientists work on the environment is that this type of leadership, this level of activation and currency is, I don't see it in sustainability and it's in lots of places. And I think people are capable of getting it in, in anywhere in particular here in sustainability. And I mean, Bill Walsh developed it over time. You've now gotten it. He got it from Tom Peters to some extent, I, I guess. He had a very curious mind. So he was very divergent and thought Walsh was one of those people that never looked at a problem and thought there was one solution or two. And he was never going to go with the trend. Like if everybody was going down Asbury Avenue, he was going to go down West because, you know, he needed to figure out a different way. And, and I learned what we what I call today false duality, which is, and the great leaders understand false duality. False duality is this. You have a problem that's put on your desk and everybody in the company says we should do this or that. It's always A or B. But the great leader figures out what C, D, E, and F are. You know, and the curious people figure out what C, D, E, and F are. And there might be another solution. I mean, there's a great way of hiring people, right? So if you want to hire somebody in your company, you go out and interview 15 people, you narrow that list down to three. Once you narrow that list down to three, you then go out and search for 10 more people who match the three that you narrowed it down to. What you're constantly trying to do is keep working your way to finding the right answer without settling for the easiest, the path of least resistance. And I think the sustainability comes from people that are curious and they're willing to keep challenging themselves to not take the easy path. Oh, we'll just do that. No problem. And how does it, what's the feeling? If you're, a lot of people, the easy path is easier. And I think most people choose the easy path. And they might look at someone like you and say, well, that's a lot of work. What's your personal experience of it emotionally or how you spend your time? Is it, I mean, I, I, I know the answer is I love it. Well, I never thought I worked a day in my life. I mean, Josh, I, I mean, I worked on my uncle's garbage truck here at Ocean City. That was work. I picked up trash on the beach when I was 13. That was work. You know, I stocked shelves at my uncle's grocery stores. That was work. I shined shoes when I was 10 years old at my father's barbershop. That was work. When I bartended at 18, that wasn't work. That was fun. I was out. That was fun. I'm like, this is fun. And then when I worked in football, I've never thought I worked. Whether I got in at four in the morning and left at 10 at night, I I never thought it was work. And nor did I felt the pressure. I loved it. You know, we get the passion of it all. I wrote a, a piece today for the Daily Coach that I think is is probably the, some of the things that people don't really focus on. Everybody says to you, especially in sustainability, everybody says, 
what comes first, culture or winning, right? Well, the answer is neither. What comes first is confidence without evidence. Walsh had confidence without evidence. When he became, when he started the West Coast offense, he knew it would work. He might have been the only one who did. He was confident. He didn't have any evidence that it would, but that confidence allowed him to, to continue on. It's why, you know, J.D. Salinger walked, I mean, literally, J.D. Salinger landed on the beaches of Normandy with Catcher in the Rye in his backpack, you know, and he went through the Hulkin Forest with Catcher in his Rye. I mean, 10 years, but he had confidence without evidence. So he kept working on his craft. So when you sustain, I mean, Michelangelo paid a 328 figures on the Sistine Chapel. I mean, he really probably thought he only paid it one, just 323 times. That's what you have confidence without evidence. Nobody came in and said, hey, Mike, you're doing a hell of a job with that, that, with that ceiling up there. He didn't need that, you know? He didn't need that. Walsh didn't need somebody to tell him he was doing a great job. If you want to sustain something, you've got to gain confidence through, through lack of evidence. I'm torn between asking to share, because the story you open your book with, uh, Gridiron Genius with, is, sounds like that. And it's one of the, leading to one of the great plays in all of football history. And is that an example of it? Of Oh, I, I think it's a complete, he, you know, I think Belichick and Walsh, uh, Belichick has complete confidence. And obviously he has evidence of six Super Bowl trophies, but before he won a Super Bowl, he had confidence without evidence. And so the story is simply this, you know, they get the ball, Seattle has the ball with 24 seconds left to go on the two yard line. And they had just run the ball. Uh, we're screaming in the press box for Belichick to call timeout. He's neglecting everybody, blocking everyone out, trying to save some time, figuring they're going to score. And this is the Super Bowl 49, you know, one of the largest audiences in television history watching. And uh, he's focused on Pete Carroll and he, and he sees their sideline somewhat disorganized. So he calls it to run a defense that we had never run in a live game before. We practiced it in April, May, June, July. We practiced it all year, but we've never run it. He said, put goal line nickel on the field. We put goal line nickel on the field. We took our best player off the field, Devin McCourty. We took him off to put a college free agent, Malcolm Butler, on the field. And they tried to throw the ball against this defense, which Pete Carroll gets a lot of crap for calling that play. It was the right play. Annie Duke in her book, she opens up her book thinking in bets with exactly the same play, saying Carroll did the right thing. And so we intercepted the pass. We won the game. And it was all because Belichick had confidence in what, without evidence. He knew what he, he knew. And that is what leaders have to spread to the people that they have. How do you do that? You believe in what you're doing. You work your work. You can't have confidence without evidence and you're never around the people. That won't rub off on them. Now I want to share, and that confidence goes all the way back to when he designed the play, when he started, when he, when he took practice time that could have been for other things, and then to do it all on the goal line. And when he, he walked in a meeting in March, for whatever reason, only, only he knows, and said to the defensive coaching staff, in one of the very first meetings I ever was in, he said to the defensive coaching staff, I want to have a nickel defense on the field that has a defensive front that can stop the run. And so they came up with what we called goal line nickel, which was we had more big people in the front than Seattle could have blocked. If, the, if Seattle would have run the ball, every idiot that says they should have run the ball, Seattle would have lost two yards because they couldn't block. We had football's a game of numbers, right? 
if I have seven and you only have six, you can't block all of them. So I'm going to make a tackle. I don't care how great Marshawn Lynch is. I mean, the play before Hightower tackled Lynch on the two-yard line with a bad shoulder. Like, we got guys to get them on the ground. And so we did that. And the coaches put it in. And we started practicing and practicing it. And then the next thing you know, in the biggest game on the biggest stage, he calls it. What did it feel, what did it feel like when he called it? When you were watching, the, I mean, the, the few seconds of that play. Do you remember? Uh, what it felt like to me was, oh, shit, we're in trouble. You know, because all of us wanted to call timeout, me included. And look, I don't ever, I've learned since being with him at 91, I don't question when he has a motive to do something, it's probably right. Because Belichick's a deliberate thinker, and he doesn't just come out and say, I want to try this, or I want to do this. Like, he is, he follows the carpenter's rule, measure twice, cut once, you know, and he measures five times before he cuts. I'm curious, I feel like this is strategy talk. Do you ever read Von Clausewitz? Do you study him? I've had a bunch of military people on the podcast. No. Okay. Do you know the name? No. So Von Clausewitz wrote a book. He was a German who watched Napoleon very successful and wrote the first book on military strategy. And it's, I was just talking to a Marine Corps retired general, three-star, and he was talking about, like, this is what we read. This is, everyone still reads it at the top level. And um, it, it's hard to read. So there's books that have summarized it. But um, he talks a lot about the coup d'oeil, the, the, um, the leaders. He uses, I mean, he's German, he uses the word in French, uh, a glance or like uh, insight intuition developed through years and years of, of experience and practice and, and discipline that in the fog of war, in the heat of battle, things are going crazy, but the great leader has this insight and intuition that, you know, all the training in the world doesn't tell you what to do on the field of battle in the field of, of play, but you need that training. And then in the moment you have to, trust the instinct that you've developed over all this time. I, I think I, I, Belichick has said, I think I always equate Belichick to the great chess player who, you know, chess players when they're not, I mean, grand master chess players, I'm sure others do too, but they study at prior games to learn how to, in, in case of a situation, because this move, there's always certain moves that come together and I feel like that's one of Belichick's greatest strengths is his prior study of games causes, allows him to be in the moment of the present game. Now I want to ask you about me uh, for, for confidence without evidence, because a lot of people look at things that I do to act sustainably on a personal level, which I distinguish from leadership, but I think it's necessary to, I don't think you can lead someone to do something that you yourself live the opposite of. So, you know, I haven't flown since 2016 and originally for environmental reasons, but now for other reasons as well. I unplugged my fridge to see because I was using the most power and I was curious to see if I could reduce that source of pollution. Uh, I'm actually now off the grid in Manhattan. I, I went over to my circuit breaker and turned it off and this is, I'm off of solar right now and I have to carry my portable solar panel up to the roof, 11 flights up and down and charge the battery. And uh, a lot of people look at that and they say, you know, what one person does doesn't matter. And I'm, to me, it feels like that's like saying to someone who intends to, to reach Carnegie Hall that playing one scale doesn't matter. And playing one, any one scale probably doesn't matter. But only by doing can you learn these things. And to me, it's, it's if I try to explain it to someone, I've, I don't think I've ever gotten it across to someone who questions the point. But to me, it seems very clear 
that how else can you develop mastery of something? How can I suggest to someone what to do if I don't know what it takes to do it? I couldn't agree more. I think if one of the greatest speeches of all time, and I read it constantly when we go back to it, is when Bobby Kennedy's in South Africa, you know, and it's the, it's called the ripple of hope speech. You know, it's the declaration speech, but he but in a paragraph, he writes that all great movements started with the work of a single person, you know, the Protestant revolution, all the things that we have been able to do start with one man, one woman, and that builds momentum. And so I never underestimate the power of one. Because if you have enough confidence to do something that looks weird to a lot of other people, you're pretty sound in your judgment. You know, would I do it? Probably not. I'm a little bit, I like conveniences, you know, but that doesn't mean that I've learned that, especially in scouting, that you can't walk in somebody else's shoes unless you can't judge them unless you walk in their shoes. I'll give you an example. I grew up in this town here and, uh, it, this is a, a resort beach town that goes from 10,000 people in the winter to 150,000 in the summer. And part of the town, there's a very affluent neighborhood. And most of the homes on the town, there's a lot of duplexes, but they're all expensive because the oceans to the oceans to the east and the bays to the west, you're surrounded by water. And so you're here and I grew up here and now I'm going to evaluate inner city African-American kids from a drug culture, from the worst possible environment you could be in. How could I even do that? I didn't understand it. And so when I watched the TV show, The Wire, I was educated on what the plight is of this, many of the players that we're trying to recruit or draft, make judgment of. Like, who am I to judge you know, after watching, and it's based on real life, uh, Ed, uh, David Simon and Ed Burke, they both based it on, you know, their experiences. And so I think to me, what I've learned is unless you can really understand the path of someone, you can't judge it. Are you developing that? I, I'm, I know the answer is yes. <laughs> You're developing that more over time. I mean, as you meet more and more players. Well, you do. I mean, everything you develop over time. I mean, you know, I think, you know, somebody once said, if we could live life backwards, we'd be better. I mean, I think there's no doubt. You know, I was talking to a, an associate athletic director who I was mentoring the other day. And, you know, the, the value that they have today is you, you have to look at other people's mistakes instead of laugh at them and say, how can I learn from that? Like, what is the what's the greatest lesson here that I should take from it? Because if you if you have to rely on your mistakes to grow, you, you won't make any money. When we spoke before, you start, you talked about your experience of you know you talked about your experience of watching football when you watch uh, sound on sound off and can you describe your experience of what what is it for you when you're watching football on TV or live either team you're with or not? I think football is the one sport. It's the most popular sport, but the fans are the least educated about the true game. They they really don't understand the game. And part of that problem is because football is there's a lot of elements running in football. It's really a, a rocket going up into space. You know, if you are a former player and they put you in the booth and say you play defensive back, it, you may know your position, but you really don't understand the whole complexities of the whole game. 
how to call the game, game situations, what's going on in the game, you know, scouting, player development, matchups, all those things. There's so many things missing. But the networks are convinced that X players have to tell you about the game and that should be able to educate you. And so there's this huge gap between what we're teaching the what we're teaching our fan base and what they should really know. There's a huge gap and it gets wider and wider. In baseball, you know, it was baseball players, they play offense and defense. Basketball players play offense and defense. Football's the only sport where they don't. And the game changes so much. So if you play football, if you're Darrell Revis and played at the Jets and your last year was five years ago, the game has pretty much changed over in five years. So now you come onto the booth, it's a different game. And you don't understand the front office. You don't understand the dynamics of drafting, how to build a team, you know. And so the, the people that get cheated the most are the fans. And that's why I usually have the sound off. I mean, the other night I was watching the NBA Finals and Mark Jackson, who's a former player from St. John's, I think, played in the NBA, coached at the Golden State Warriors. They asked him the simple question. He's, he's making a lot of money working for ABC. His job is to teach you and I the game. And they asked him, Mark, what do the Warriors have to do in the fourth quarter to get things going? And he said, execute. That would have drove Bill Walsh completely insane. What what does that mean? It's like you telling your students to study harder. I mean, or me telling, say you're a carpenter. Do you tell the carpenter to bring his hammer to work? Of course you don't. That just comes with the job, right? You know, working hard comes with the job, you know, execution comes with it. It's part of the, it's already on the menu. Give me something I can cling to. Tell me what I need. To, tell me what I'm not seeing. What am I not seeing? And if, and when I watch a game, there's so much they're not seeing that I don't even want to put the sound on. And I'm not trying to be a snob about it at all. I'm not. It's just to me, and I don't fault them for doing it. I, I just think to me, it's, you know, they're in a, a soundbite business. You got to do it rather quickly and they can't make their point. So they're missing. What's something that you see in, I don't know, some game? I don't know. It's just. All right, let's take, let's take the Buffalo Bills against the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. Let's take that game. 13 seconds left to go in the game. All right. So you're, I'm in the booth. I said to Jim, 13 seconds left to go. They've got to kick the ball in bounds. They've got to make sure the returner takes the ball out so it eliminates one play. If there's 13 seconds on the clock here, Jim, I'm talking to Jim Nance. That means they only have three plays left. It's the most they have is three plays. So if we make them kick the ball in bounds, that eliminates an offensive play. That means one less play for Patrick Mahomes to have. Okay? All right. They don't kick it in bounds. Big mistake, Jim. They had Brian Pringle back there. They should have kicked it to Pringle at him. He would have, what have he done? Okay, Jim, first and 10, the ball's at the 35. They got to tackle every receiver, get called for defensive holding. Why, Michael? Because if they get called for defensive holding, it's a play, but they don't put more time back on the clock. They don't put more time back on the clock. So Mahomes is back there. And Jim, we're not going to rush four guys here because he's going to get rid of the ball quickly. So why would we rush four? We're only going to rush three. We're going to play coverage and tackle every receiver at the line of scrimmage. Let him call a five-yard penalty. That takes seven seconds off. Now they got one play. Hail Mary, let's cover. Now, I just educated you on what should happen. Did that happen? <laughs> no, yeah. No, yeah. I can tell you it, it didn't. I'm just thinking of how vivid it was. What you're saying is so clear. Because nobody looks at the play clock as the number of plays. 
They look at the play clock as the play clock. It's not a play clock. How many plays? I'm in the league. There's 30 seconds. Okay, I'll go another situation. Tampa Bay, the, the Tampa Bay ties the score. There's 37 seconds, I think, left to go. Bruce Arians kicks the ball out of the end zone. Okay, that's one more play for Stafford. You know, he lets them get it. You know, so now they got 37 seconds. They have at least at least six plays they can get. I got to defend six plays to keep them out of field goal range. That's the conversation. How do I do that? What do I have to do? Well, one of the plays I got tackle. I got I got to make sure I, they don't get any. I'll give them five yards if I call deep. Let me the call defensive holding. Because defensive holding is a five-yard penalty. They don't put, like, that's a personal foul. You held too tightly. No, it's a, you know. And so that's the, that's the kind of thing. We're not – situational football doesn't get educated. They're too busy on Monday Night Football talking about the defensive back technique, the trail technique. Nobody cares about that. Football's chess on grass. Explain the situation. What are the alternatives in the situation? What should we do here? You know, we have X amount of time. There's six plays to go in the game. Here we go. There's so much to comment on here. The, one of the biggest things is your passion. And I'm, I'm thinking that it has not waned a bit since Bill Walsh. This is probably what he saw in you, you know, largely informed at that stage. But this level of, of I mean, now it's based on knowledge and experience. And then it was based on enthusiasm and hope for the future. Ambition, yeah. And you, you sound like me when, when I'm walking down the street with friends and there's litter. And I'm just like, how can, like the other day I was walking down the street and I, I'm talking to my friend and I'm, I pick up this piece of litter. I'm like, how could this happen? How could someone, it was like a wrapper, a, a foil wrapper with some paper in it that, from some fast McDonald's, something like that. I don't know. No, not from there because it would have been from a, a truck. In any case, it was just on the ground. Someone just dropped it. When I was a kid, not long ago, that was unacceptable. We didn't do that. We've completely accepted. The, the United States has, this is going to be a blog post of mine. I've written the title, which is uh, Prove Me Wrong. America has lost any sense of leave it better than you found it. But, but we have it really. It, it, like one of the things that blows people away, the inter- Army, West Point goes and plays Oklahoma and Norman, Oklahoma. Now that's a, that's a matchup that should even play, right? But they play them to an overtime game and the army loses. And when army leaves, the locker room is cleaner than when they found it. Yeah. I mean, we're teaching it in America in our military systems. There's no doubt. We just have, we have lost the middle of our country. We've lost it. You know, we have lost that ability to have conversations in the middle and, it, and we're polarized on both extremes. And America was founded in the middle. And I'm not, this is not a political conversation, but because of Fox's urge of having to go far to the right and CNN going far to the left, somebody like Michael Lombardi doesn't have anybody to listen to in the middle. There used to be a thing called a Southern Democrat. Bobby Kennedy talks about it all the time. It's one of the reasons why JFK needed Lyndon Johnson to run with him in the 60s is so that we had control the Southern Democrats, the people that are pretty much like most Americans in the middle. But, you know, I mean, we're seeing it today in San Francisco. They overthrew the DA who was allowing people to shoplift left and right without any harsh penalties. Even that became too much for San Francisco. So your litter problem is unless you're willing to 
you know, really be demanding and, and set a standard of excellence for people, it's hard to get anybody to do it. Everybody, you know, Twitter, everybody, you go to Twitter. Here's the best thing to do. Go to any YouTube video you want to go to that you think is sensational. There'll be three, there'll be three thumbs down at least. And so what's happening is we're trying to make everybody happy. You know, and, and what you find out is it's hard to do that. Yeah, just to clarify, when you say we lost the middle, you don't mean geographic center. You mean the people who aren't extreme, people who aren't lobbing grenades at the other side to get them to lob grenades back. People that are moderate that are looking for solutions. You know, I mean, we're looking for solutions. I mean, we were a country built on trying to find solutions and, and everything is now polarizing to the extreme and we politicize everything. Yeah, you're making me think of, uh, when I think of you, you know what I think of you besides football and writing? Bruce. And Bruce Springsteen's version of This Land is Your Land. I mean, there's many, many versions of it. And I don't know how relevant this is, but not long after the January 6th event of last year, I was just walking along and I was practicing singing. I'm not a singer, but I was trying to learn. And I was singing This Land is Your Land. And I was thinking of of Bruce's, on the, the triple album version. And it nearly brings me to tears. Actually, that day it did bring me to tears of all these people saying, this is what America is. Like, this is, this is what America stands for. And none of them spoke for me. They were all saying they spoke for something. And it was what you described as of the lost middle of the, I don't want to say normal American, common American, average American, but like, you know, someone who's wants to live a good life and leave it better than they found it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. When we can't protect our children, we're not leaving the world better than we found it. Our job when we're born is to, as a parent, your job is to make your kid's life better than your life. And then they make their life better than their life. I, I wrote about this for the daily coach and Aaron McKee, the head basketball coach at temple. His grandfather said to him, I walked 10 miles to school. Your father walked five miles to school. You drive a Cadillac. Your son's going to drive a Porsche. Your next son's going to drive a Mercedes. And then his son's going to walk 10 miles to school. And he said, why would you say that? And he said, because hard times make men harder. And I think sometimes we don't want to fight through the hard times. We're looking for the path of least. We're looking for the, you know, Belichick tells the team all the time, there's no diet pill to take to lose 50 pounds. You got to work. Got work at it, and your litter problem is you got to work at it. You got to be willing to. It would drive Walsh crazy. This just shows you the attention to detail for Bill Walsh. Is if you, it's funny, and I wrote about this in the new book. If you walk by a picture on the wall, and I do it today, that's not straight, he would go crazy. Yeah, you mentioned that in the in, the, in Good Iron Genius too. If you didn't pick up a piece of paper or a litter, why would you? You know. That's how you build a conscientious team. Yeah, I've actually lost the, I have to work to get to the mindset of someone who litters. Or, and actually, not only litters, I have to work to get to the mindset of someone who passes by other people's litter and doesn't pick it up. I mean, maybe not every single piece, but at least several pieces a day. How can you not? Yeah, well, I mean, there is issues with, you know, obviously with our hand cleanliness, there is issues. But I, I do think to me, what it's the bigger, it's like, the drug problem in America, it's like we focus on the drug problem when what's the real issue is we're killing people, you know, 
And then what's the issue with litter? It's the lack of respect you have for the people that you surround yourself with. Until you handle that, you won't handle the litter. One of the things you learn about football, when I used to get on the team playing with the Oakland Raiders, Al Davis would ask, why did we win? Why did we lose? We don't ask ourselves enough of that question. You know, that's the question that we should ask. And look, I don't own a gun. I don't want a gun. I don't care about guns. I'm not a gun guy, you know, but I know that the gun problem in America is deeper than just take guns away. Because we tried that with alcohol and they found alcohol. It's a deeper question. Do I think people should have assault rifles? I don't think so. I don't see that. I don't understand it. I'm not that person. But it's a deeper issue because the way we are set up in this country, you can buy it. Why somebody could go online and buy body armor, complete body armor without somebody knowing about it in a a, a public. I don't understand it. But my point is we have to ask deeper questions. Ask deeper questions. I I feel what we're talking about here is culture. And you write, culture eats strategy for lunch. And I mean, that's what I'm trying to work on at my end is sustainability, environmental, uh, our culture with regard to nature. I feel like you talk about how Bill Walsh created culture and people who then took his system elsewhere, but didn't really get it. They weren't able to do it. What's the difference? How? Well, because I think a lot of it comes to, you know, first of all, you don't understand it completely and you don't have enough confidence in it without evidence. And so you give up on it. You kind of modify it and change it. Walsh wasn't going to change his 17 principles of standards of leadership. He wasn't going to change. But you go somewhere else and the new organization you go to isn't quite adaptable to that. And they don't want to do it. And they don't want to change. And so therefore you start to modify. It's no different than if you and I, you know, wanted to open up a restaurant, we could get all of Emeril Lagasse's recipes online and we could open it up and cook everything he cooked. We just can't make it the way he makes it. But what Walsh wanted you to do is try to understand the genesis of what he was doing, understand the foundations. And if you don't understand that, you can't duplicate it. Because when it breaks down, how do you fix it? You can't. When coaches in football steal a play, they watch a play on TV, oh, that's a great play. Let's put that in. When it doesn't work, how are you fixing it? Because you don't know it. And that's why... The chess players don't, they know the moves before they study the history of the move. They know every variable that could come from this move. I think it was in the conversation between Belichick and Saban that it was about, Belichick was really trying to understand the history of a particular play or a particular situation. Is that what you're talking about? That he's not just going to say, what, what does this player do? But like everything. Right. So like there's history, and I wrote about this in my new book you got to understand that history. When I used to get on the team bus in, in San Francisco, I would get on Coach Walsh's bus and I would sit behind him. He was always in seat one. And he would be doodling Clark Shaughnessy's plays on this little index card. And one time I asked him, I said, because he said, because the past is the future. He wanted to learn from Clark Shaughnessy to implement it. Not that he was going to steal his play, but he wanted to learn what he was trying to get done so he could utilize it. And I think that's really smart. You know, if you want to study, like I was just telling you, a young kid came by my house today asking me for advice on how to get into football. And I told him the story of Pete Corral. Pete Corral is a basketball coach at Princeton University. He kind of invented what they call the Princeton offense, which is a lot of back cuts, movement without the ball. Tonight, Golden State runs some of the concepts of Princeton's offense. 
you know, and so Petey Corral, everybody wanted to learn his offense. So they would go up to Princeton to go sit in Jadwin gym and, you know, try to get him to spend 10 minutes with them. And if somebody came up to him and said, you know, coach, talk to me about the, the Princeton offense, he would say, get out of here. But if somebody came up to him that had spent time studying his offense and asked him a specific question that put time into it, that wasn't trying to read a, a footnote, he gave you all the time in the world, right? And we're always looking for the shortcut. Like I could never ask Walsh a question that I didn't at least think through five, six, seven times. I wasn't going to go expose myself to a stupid question. And, you know, that's ridiculous or off the cuff. And same thing with Pete. So Petey was basically like he wanted people that were as interested in his offense and were willing to put the time into it. He didn't want the ones who wanted to dabble in it. It sounds like the culture of, of people who really, they don't need this motivation to do it and they love it. And, but the, re, the rewards are there for anyone. I mean, anyone can get it. I mean, I certainly, the way that you talk makes me think of the things that I'm passionate about. And, you know, I can ask myself, is my level of passion at the level of his level of passion, but if it's less, I certainly want to reach that level. I can't stand the idea of not, of abdicating, capitulating. Well, because you, yeah, I mean, you're not, you don't want to settle. You want to be the best. And then once you get there, you don't have a finish line. I think people that don't have a finish line, that's how you have sustainability. Belichick doesn't have a finish line. Tom Brady certainly doesn't have a finish line. You know, Bruce Springsteen doesn't have a finish line. I mean, there's a, there's a quote I actually, I put it in the Daily Coach today. I read by Springsteen where he said, you know, like he said, uh, I'm not in any rush. I'm not somebody who, if I write a song, I get it out. That's not something I've really quite done. Why? To me, what he's saying there is he's not looking for your approval or my approval. He wants to make that song the best in his life that he can make it. So he's not looking for, hey, what do you think? He knows what he thinks. That's sustainability. That level of, yeah, it's. Comes from confidence. And you have confidence in what you believe in. And if you didn't, you would have changed 10 years ago. Yeah. I want to try what I talked to you about before we start, we hit record. Is the environment something that's important to you? The environment is something that's important to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't drink, I try not to drink bottled water because I think it's ridiculous. You know, I'm not a fisherman or a hunter, you know, but I don't think that it's healthy for our, I think our job is to leave this world in a better place than we found it. Very refreshing to hear. Uh, when you think about the environment, like what, what, what do you picture when you picture the environment? Is it something you grew up or? I picture the beauty of Big Sur. I picture the beauty of Big Sur. And I picture the beauty of that we should preserve that for others to see. Because if you're ever at Monterey Bay or you're ever at Carmel and you see this country and if you live in the state of California, you can go north, south, east or west and see things you've never seen before. I think of Tuscany. Think of some of the beauty of that country and how they don't allow, they preserve their history. Can you describe what you see? What do you hear? What do you, I mean, what, what's a sensory experience of it? I mean, I, I've seen pictures of, I guess, Big Sur. I've never been there. I haven't been to Tuscany. I've been to Italy. I mean, what you see is, well, first of all, in Italy, it's all about smells because they don't use the, their whole pesticides. Their, their, their fruits and vegetables are completely different. 
that's why their recipes don't taste like ours. They're, they're way different because they, their fruits and vegetables don't have the pesticides. They don't have processed food. They live a different life than we live in how they eat, how they process, how they enjoy it. You know, if you talk to any chef in, in Italy, it's not about the food, it's about the experience. And so I think that that carries over into their view of the environment. Now, you know, you could say, well, if you go to Naples, it looks like a crap hole, right? It does, you know, but I think every country has their own issues. But what I think what you see, when you think about the environment, I live on the beach. I see this ocean that's absolutely gorgeous. How about that? What's the emotional experience of it? I mean, you, you talk about enjoying it, but it, I think what, like anything, I think there's a creative process that goes to it, right? I mean, how more creative are you when you're preserving something or seeing something that you really are appealing to? You tend to relax. You tend to think things through. You kind of, I mean, I learned that right in the book. You know, when you write a book, your journey on that book requires you to find other avenues to renew your energy source. So it's a source of energy. It's creative. I think when you write every day, you are way more aware of life way more aware of life. I mean, I write every day. I write, sometimes I write for the daily coach. Sometimes I write for these. I mean, I write every day. I mean, I grew up as a football person, but I think of myself as a writer now. I write every day and I am way more aware. If I go to the grocery store, I'm way more aware of what I see, you know, what I'm thinking about. If that's an idea for the daily coach and I carry a book with me to write it down because I'm old and I forget. Given these experiences of the creativity of the energy that it gives you the joy that you describe the the culture that maybe you think of in italy i invite you at, at your option because you don't know what's coming but to think of something to do to act on those things that's i want to contrast it with most people when they say here's what you should do on the environment is they tell them what to do and it's all extrinsic and this is intrinsic. And it's, I'm definitely not saying what's something you could do to help the environment. I'm saying, what can you do to, is there something you could think of to do to act on what the environment means to you, or these intrinsic emotions with three conditions, if, if you're up for it, three constraints, something you're not already doing, something you do with your own hands that is not getting others to do it. And something that leaves the world a bit better than you found it by your values in some way, non-zero. And you don't have to do it, uh, but if you're up for it, it usually takes a bit of going back and forth between you and me to think of something. But then I'd ask if you'd be willing to come back and share how it went. Yeah, I, I can do that for you. Sure. Does anything have to mind of what you do? I mean, for me, I think what I try to do is practice, it is try to play my part in the environment, whatever role I could play. You know, does that mean recycle? Does that mean make sure that I pick up my dog's poop when I go out and people don't? make sure that I pick up the mess that the trash guys don't pick up. I think anything I can do to make it a better place, I'm more than willing to do. I think your actions speak more than your words. You know yourself better than I do. I'm not saying to do, it may be that doing your part for the environment is itself one of those rewarding things. That's, it, does that connect with your experience of the environment? Because I'm not trying to say do something for others, although that may happen. But it's, you know, to bring into your life that. Yeah, I've never really thought about it. I've never thought about it like that. Like, how could I do something like that? Like to bring a bit of Tuscany into your day, to bring a bit of. Yeah, I, which I do every day. I mean, I, I do that every day. I try to, you know, I'm obsessed now with 
Italian cooking shows on YouTube. It makes no sense at all, but I'm just, they're all in Italian. I feel like if I watch enough of them, I'll learn, I'll learn the language by now. So, yeah, I mean, I have found that to be a better writer, you've got to find different experiences. And part of it is touching the outdoors. So this is more the direction I'm more interested in. I'm not saying don't do other things like pick up the garbage if the garbage collectors didn't pick it all up. But is there something you could do along these lines? Something that you're, you're already doing some things like watching the shows. Is there a next step that. But yeah, I don't, I don't equate that to the environment, but I do equate like I'm obsessed. I watched this video. I wrote about it on the daily coach about this baker in the South of France. It's an incredible video. It's 15. It's the best 16 minutes you could ever spend. He owns this bakery in the South of France, him and his wife. And he's got this oven that goes back to the 18th century. And he's everything. I mean, he's the janitor. He's the baker. He's the dough maker. He's the display maker. He's the cleanup guy. He does everything. And he starts his day at four in the morning and he probably doesn't end it until six. But it was just overwhelming to watch him work, you know? And so I've become inspired to bake bread just because of that, just because I watched him and what he creates with his two hands. And what makes it more remarkable for me when I watch the video is he does it every day. I tell people this all the time. What, what you don't, the hardest thing to do in life is to do something every day and not get bored. So I figured it out. Now there's more than this, but Springsteen has appeared in probably 2,500 concerts in his career. And every concert, he plays Born to Run. But I can tell you, Born to Run, the way he plays it the first time is the way you'll hear it the 2,600 times. Doesn't change. With the same enthusiasm, the same love, the same feeling, the same passion. He doesn't cut the, you know, most of these people, they want to cut the song short so they can get there because they hate singing the song. It's boring to them. Not him. That's why he's great, because he didn't get bored. And the reason he's great is because John Landau told him to read books, told him to read about Flannery O'Connor and told him to read different things to become more involved. So I think that, and so I'm getting, so the baking thing to me is a way of kind of connecting with how do your hands connect to your body? That would be something that, have you started acting on that yet? I, I just baked my first loaf today, actually. I did. I did earlier today. I baked it. So then if, you're already, if you've already done that, is there something you could do to the next step? Because I'm hearing passion. and I, I do, Well, today I made, I made, like, I want to make baquettes. I want to make, because I've watched him. He, you know, in France, you have to have a, you have to take a test to make baquettes. Like, you can't go to the nearest Trader Joe's and buy a baquette there in France. No chance. You know, you've got to have a certificate from the French government to learn how to make baquettes. So that's like the next thing I want to do. Like, I want to learn how to, how to make dough because I think that dough is, especially in my town where I live, we have one baker here who's incredible. Now, he puts no preservatives in his, in his bread, which is fabulous. But if you eat it the day he bakes it, it's incredible. If you wait tomorrow, you got to make a toast. But to me, I want to learn how to do that. I bet it's almost as good as my mom's bread. <laughs> I bet it probably is. You know, it's funny. If you watch this video of this guy in France, it's incredible. I mean, I'm in awe of the guy. Happy as can be. 
got nine jobs. And he's not just making baguettes. He's making all sorts of things. Yeah. It's the best video I've ever seen. I'm scared to do it, but like I'm hearing him, his approach to bread sounds like your approach to football. That, and It should be our approach to life. And he slows it down. There's an establishment in Italy called the slow food process. Yeah. Where they, you know, they don't want you to go into fat. You know, they want you to slow it down. I think it's great. And, and I, I've tried to adopt that. Because I think in this, we, we are so rushed. You know, we can't wait to get, because we got to get it on Twitter. We got to get it out there. Like I said to my wife, maybe 25 years ago, we were in Capri. And I said, if, if I could watch the NFL, NFL games here, and read the USA Today, I'd live here. I don't even read the USA Today anymore, so that's out. And I could watch NFL games. I mean, like, what I've tried to do, I turned 63 in 11 days. I want to slow down, but hurry up. You know, I want to slow down my thought process and hurry up my engagement, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, this is, you're describing my experience with the environment and what I'm trying to evoke in others through experience that most people expect, most people, you know, they like walking among trees and, and listening to the ocean, the waves lapping up. And, but they're also afraid that if they don't, if they really act on sustainability, then society will fall apart and the GDP will, if it doesn't keep going up, then hospitals will close. And, and so they're willing to look the other way as they wreck things. Now, other people look at it differently. And, but my personal experience, and when I walk people through this process, they reach what it sounds like you've already reached in a major way, but certainly with food, of that there's a huge joy. And there's, I think a lot, when I walk people through this process and they come up with something that they weren't going to do already and they do something with their hands, they almost always come back and say, they tell me about reward that they experienced was greater than they expected in, in areas that they didn't expect. They almost always do more than they, than they said they would. And I walk them through the process, but they come up with the motivation themselves. Yeah. And one of the most effective ways that I know of to change someone's belief is, to, is for them to act. And when the belief would predict a certain outcome and a different outcome happens, that does more than any amount of telling people, here's the fact and you're wrong, which will generally get them to believe it even more so. But if you do that, like I, I'm a big believer in never begin with the end in mind. Like when you write a book, you have a blueprint on the book, but the book is going to take you somewhere you weren't anticipating and how you adapt and how you receive that change and not fight it is kind of how you'll improve your skill set. Because when we're on this journey in life, we all think we know where the finish line is, but it, it could be five degrees different and five degrees in an airplane, you could end up flying to Philly, but you're really in Savannah, you know? I mean, so you just got to be more adaptive because we really don't know where it's going to take us. And when we don't know where it's going to take us, we'll end up being better for it. Because once, if you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry, what happens when you get there? Yeah, there's no finish line. It's like crazy. If Springsteen has a great line, he says, poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, king ain't satisfied, they only rule everything. Is that the life you want to live? Is that the agenda? I think in life, we learn later in life, at least I do, that the journey is more powerful than the rewards. I'm curious how you, what, was, what were you responding to in what I said that 
you were saying that. Did it sound like I was pushing to a target? No, I was remarking on as you get older in life, you're no longer in competition with outside forces. You're enjoying your life, which slows you down. And if you did that when you're 40, you would be a better version of 40. I'm remarking on the, the uh, I think most people would not expect this conversation from someone who's a diehard football professional, uh, aficionado, uh, professional. It's remarkable. So I have to remark on it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, I, I'm a writer now, but I, I'm at my expertise is in football. But I think if you're curious, and you are, and I am, you broaden your horizons. And if you ask the question and that you don't, if you're not afraid to say, I don't know something, you'll learn a lot. Yeah, we're at an hour and I, I want to wrap up. I will just ask one more time. Do you want to try to think of something to do? I definitely, I mean, I, I want to keep, keep making this thing. I keep wanting to go down this path. I don't know how else to change. I'm in love with it. I, I think it's, I just bought a scale today because baking is science, you know? And so I've been working this whole week on trying to improve on that. And we have so many preservatives in our food that we don't even realize it. So, I mean, that would be something I would definitely want to do. Would you be willing to come back and share how it's gone? Yeah, let me know. Give me a month or two. Let me keep working at it. I'm getting better at it. Yeah, you're not that far away. I, I'm like, I want to taste it. <laughs> so good. I mean, it's, you know... I tell this kid today, they're very, we are very fortunate today to have the ability. I have four typewriters here in this office. I have two Royals, a Remington and Olympic. And I have typewriter ribbon that I buy from Mr. Typewriter, a man in St. Louis. And he sends me the, the ribbon. I tell him what typewriters I have and I buy the ribbons and all that. But when I have to install it, I have to go to YouTube and type in Royal 41, and some guy comes up from somewhere, I have no idea, and he tells me how to do it. It's remarkable, right? Like, if you're curious, you can learn anything. I want to follow up on this, but I know we, we have to keep the time. So I propose we'll communicate offline, schedule a next conversation, and I'm really interested to hear how it goes, especially if, by some chance, what we talked about connects with it in some way. If that Great. augments the experience. Works for me. Anything you want to leave the audience with before we wrap up? I think the one thing what we really talked about is MacArthur didn't write it, but there's a thing called a creed for youth. Whereas as you get older and you give up your, your ideals and your principles, and you basically, you, you tend to wilt away. Curiosity is something, no matter how old you get or how young you are, you have to maintain it. It's, a, it's the fuel that will drive you. And whether you're 19 or 90, you got to be curious. Michael Lombardi, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.